3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money Starts Now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I hope you want to make friends. I'm just trying to help you save some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to cheat. So call me at 1 800 743 CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Well, I heard it all day today. I heard it called the end of the bull market. The popping of the bubble—the <clears throat> beginning of the real pain. The house of pain. I get why. I mean, the Dow plunged 450 points. S&P plummeting 1.89 percent. The Nasdaq—I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even want to look at it. It was like yo, know, well, okay, it was down 2.72 percent. But you know what? The air's been going out of the balloon for months now with the balloon being the speculative names, and today it reached the end in Faang, Netflix. And the pin action? Well, the pin action really did spread all over the market. But this is just the process I've been warning you about for two months, ever since they did not stop pumping out all this junk, these underwriters. Unless a company's got a real product or service that can generate substantial profits, its stock just won't hold up, at least not for the near future. We had too many new stocks, too much junk, and not enough money coming in. And remember, it is a market, and there's more to sell than there is to buy. Listen, for over a year, I've had to hold my nose at 9.30 a.m. when I heard the bell that told for newly listed companies that were flimsy and deserved none of your time or money, and I said that. Now those chickens are coming home to roost, so I urge you to look over your portfolio and ask yourself if you know what your companies really do. Are they losing money? Do the stocks trade on revenues rather than earnings? Do they trade at sky-high prices to earnings multiples? Are they really just crazily expensive? In that case, it's going to remain painful because this is a true shakeout. If you want to take a chance with these plummeting high flyers, you can't afford to own more than one or two. And you can't afford to listen to the show because it's not going to help you. Now, we're willing to accept a couple of historically expensive stocks from my charitable trust, a couple. And you can follow by joining the CBC Investing Club. But otherwise, this group needs to be sold into any strength like you had yesterday morning. The good news is that the market got really oversold today. It's at minus six in the oscillator. That's a start. And pessimism reigns supreme. The bad news is that we are now in the heart of earnings season, where you may own a clunker because of supply chain issues, raw costs. or, Or what's happened in the tail end of the pandemic, if only because Omicron looks like it's going to get nearly everybody. Plus, bonds soared today. Ha, huh, that's a flight to quality, as some grizzle traders believe that the Russian bear takes Ukraine this weekend. I have no real intel on that, but it brought the S&P and the Dow down later in the day. It was Russia that drove it down, not Netflix. Doesn't matter if you buy high-quality companies. We're going to come through this Okay even if you just start here and buy lower. With these caveats out of the way, why don't we go to our game plan for next week. Stay rational. It's one of the heaviest weeks of earnings season. On Monday morning, we hear from a key player in a one-scorn group that's now loved, and that's Halliburton, the oil service company. While the oil companies are indeed on fire, they're doing well precisely by not drilling excessively. Will Haliburton tell us that their discipline is breaking? Good for Hal? If you like the oil stocks as much as I do, this is a must-listen conference call. The oil stocks are a great place to be here. After the close, IBM reports that I'm expecting very little from what should be an extremely convoluted quarter because of the kindred managed infrastructure service spinoff. I do like the way that CEO Arvind Christians is rationalizing the business at all costs. Classic example, IBM selling certain assets from its Watson health division to a private equity firm. Remember that? Lots of burned capital there. Tuesday morning, we get results from two companies that are doing everything they can to make money for shares. They're breaking up General Electric and Johnson & Johnson. We need to know how all these different divisions are doing. Their stocks did not react well to the breakup announcement, and then the market turned ugly. So there's a lot to unpack here. No hurry. You can afford to take your time in analyzing both of them. Neither one is going to run away from you. My favorite stock for Tuesday morning is one that could run away, and that's Lockheed Martin, because the country seems woefully unprepared for what feels like a new Cold War against the authoritarian axis of Russia and China, not unlike 1952-55. Meet the new Cold War, same as the old Cold War. Let's see what CEO Jim Takelett has to say. I like America's best going into the quarter thanks to the resurgence of small, medium-sized businesses, but also thanks to the return of travel I expect post-Omicron. I actually expect a good quarter from these guys. Then after the close comes the incredibly important Microsoft. We need to hear about continued growth in Azure, Microsoft's cloud computing hub. A lot of people are now worried about online. Shopify went down big today. People are saying that online's over. This is not true. The Federal Reserve Open Market Committee closes out on Wednesday. We're going to hear from Jay Powell about tightening and shedding bonds. Now, many of you feel this whole decline is anticipation of what Powell will say on Wednesday. I disagree with that. I believe his comments will suck liquidity out of the system, too. I think the current sell-off simply marks the end of what amounts to a wholesale pump-and-dump scheme orchestrated by the private equity venture capital complex in the form of garbage SPAC deals and low-quality IPOs. Now, Powell will talk about his schedule of rate hikes, and as long as he doesn't say he's going to do it in lockstep, I bet we'll be fine. Hey, by the way, a lot of what he said is already, you know, he's already slowed the economy down. Of course, it's more than the Fed. Boeing imports in the morning, and I'm expecting nothing. That's right, rien. That's French. Nothing. Not anything on China, not anything on orders, not anything on the 787. If you expect nothing, you see you're never disappointed. That's right. You hope for the best, but you prepare for the worst. And that's how I'm approaching Boeing for the investing club. The uh, aerospace cycle is just too good to ignore. But the company's not well managed. If I were Boeing, I literally would do this. And if I You know, they can call me in, but I like my job. I would start by talking about defense, not commercial, because it's really hard to screw up defense when you got a Cold War. It's not great either, but at least it's better than 77 to max. We lost Netflix. How about Tesla? After the close, Elon Musk will give us his forecast. I expect another good quarter. He's got really good news this week in Europe. New York, uh, new electric vehicle sales passed diesel sales. Wow. Given that Tesla's Berlin plant is on the rise and Musk has a ton to crow about. Pat Gelsker, talking about crowing, the CEO of Intel, it was talking about building a new Silicon Heartland in Ohio, we will talk about this later, $20 billion multi-year investment watershed. Oh, it would be great if you could pull it off. I hope he tells us how it will be funded when its company reports it for the close. Intel generates a ton of cash. It's like a slot machine, even. But I wish the state of Ohio and the federal government would help them out more directly, especially the Defense Department, because the semiconductor supplies are a national security issue because so much of our semiconductors come from Taiwan, which is at the heart of the Cold War. On Thursday morning, we get one that might be easier than others, McDonald's. Restaurant business is in disarray right now, thanks to Omicron chaos and broken supply chains. We're headed for a winner-take-all scenario, and the last man standing will most certainly be McDonald's, among others. After the close that day, we get results from Apple. And you know what? This time it could actually be anticlimactic. You know why? For the first time in ages, Apple stock won't be coming in hot which gives you a real chance to make some money on the company. I always say you should simply own, not trade. I'm ever hopeful that they'll break out the lifetime value of a phone buyer like a consumer products company. That's where the real money is now, and Apple can stress that superior technology and consumer love make the lifetime value very sticky. It's not a compromise to say that it's consumer products. It doesn't make you into some, you know, bleach company, for heaven's sake. Finally, on Friday, we have two really good companies, Chevron and Caterpillar. Chevron should be a monster. Travel Trust owns it. Lean, mean, oil machine. Hope it goes down so I can buy more. Caterpillar are one of the more challenged industries because its roll costs are going up, but orders may or may not be able to override the impact because we never got that big infrastructure, build back better thing. I'm not ignoring the elephant in the room that the Nasdaq just had its worst week since the initial COVID crash. I'm simply saying that the market's following the script I laid out when the Fed started its new, less accommodative phase. You don't want to own the companies with no earnings, the ones that are valued only on sales and don't really make anything decipherable, including profits, especially when they're going after the real good companies now. Yeah, they got to the great ones. But if you have, uh, let's just say uh, it's not so much uh, a funeral, it's just a sale. The bottom line, if you listen to the companies I just mentioned next week, I bet you'll be appropriately surprised at all the money these great American enterprises are making. But as for the not so great American enterprises like the SPACs and most of the recent IPOs, they'll be stuck in the house of pain for the foreseeable future. You won't make money instantly If any of the great companies turns around, we don't know what's going to cause the market to turn around. I am saying if you buy great American companies, not junk, you tend to do pretty well historically. Bob in New York. Bob. Hey, Jim, I tell you, as a
4: small-time investor, uh, this sure feels like a full-blown market crash, and um, it's kind of scary. My question is about Starwood Properties, Jim. A-Rod acquired 50—Starwood uh, and Arod acquired 57 single-family rental homes in Palm Beach. Is this the type of transaction that uh, is uh, positive for Starwood going well, forward? Well,
3: you know, when you're in one of these markets, you, you called it a crash. You know, let's just step back for a second. Let's say it's a really, really serious correction so we don't get into an 87-like thing. So who do you want to bank with? How about a guy—I met this guy the first time at the Super Bowl in 2018, uh, Barry look You know, the guy's like a seasoned guy. He has been the kind of guy you bank with. He's got a you nice know, yield. Seems nobody's doing. Stock was at 18, came on the show, said, don't worry. People bought it, made a lot of money. I like to go with guys like Sternlich and tough. When the tough get going, Sternlich is at the pack, in the middle, to then goes to the front of the pack. Matt in Colorado, Matt. Hey, booyah, Jimmy Chill. This is Matt from Denver. I was uh, calling, wondering about Monster Energy Corp. I saw they recently acquired Oscar Blues at a longbow i if you think it's a buy or a sell. Uh, you know, uh, oh boy. And not yet. Not yet. Not yet. It goes lower. Sorry. How about Mark in Massachusetts, please? Mark.
5: Hi, Jim. How are you? How's I'm you good. Time? How are
3: you? I'm great. Uh, I've been
5: watching
1: your show since it started back in the early 2000s, but it's the first time I've ever called.
5: Well, here
3: we are. I'm glad you're on the show with me. Yeah. So my question is about Home Depot. It's Pretty much dropped about 70 points just since January 3rd
4: and 35 points just since last Friday, which is about a 20 percent
3: and 10 percent drop, respectively. Right.
4: PE is 23
5: in the Dow, and yet there's no coverage. On this drop, pretty much anywhere. well. There's no
3: coverage to drop because people can't figure out whether their homes are starting to go down in value. So therefore, you're putting money in home. You're not going to do well. You know, Home Depot is a great American company. But what's happened right now is that in the last 10 minutes of any given day, there's no buyers. Okay, so let, you know, give us a good example. Let's spend a second on this. Home Depot goes at 3:49. Do you know that if I told you at 3:30 on on Monday that it's at 3:49, uh, it could be at 3:30 by the end of the day? There's no liquidity. There's no liquidity. So all I can tell you is when, you, when there's no liquidity, you buy, you buy 20 shares, then you buy 20 shares, you buy 20 shares. You have to do what we do for a, for my travel trust. You, you can't do it at one level. The market's just too uncertain. Laura in New York. Laura. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. You're quite welcome. I'm calling, calling to
4: find out if you think the drop in Costco has been related to being a pandemic play, and if now's a good entry point, if it's a solid company.
3: Well, okay, so... Uh, Portfolio manager Jeff Marks and I spent most of the morning talking about whether we should come out and say to people, buy Costco. We were thinking about doing it. And the reason why is because we said we know it did great. It reported unbelievable numbers. It's a pandemic and non-pandemic play, but it sells at 37 times earnings. So we got a little gunshot. But that said, we own it much, much lower. We were willing to think about violating our discipline because this is the best run retailer in the world. All right. Big week of earnings ahead. I think you'll be surprised at all the money these great American companies are making. And in the end, that's going to matter. It won't matter now because at 320, big sellers come in and knock the market down 2%. I can't help that. You have to think about it as a sale, not a funeral. As for the SPACs and many of the recent IPOs, I think they're going to be stuck in the house of pain for the foreseeable future. On money, they have money tonight. 8th band, Huntington Bank Shares got crushed today after earnings, this, but it's got 4% yield. I kind of like it. I'm thinking him in the quarter with the CEO. And after another tough day for the averages, just how worried should we be about the coming weeks? You know what we got to do? We got to go off the charts. People just pass find out. And you called me and you stopped me with some of your holdings, so tonight I'm turning in my homework. One of these two sounds very, very interesting. The other one, how about the dice roll? It's David Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question?
3: Well, what the heck just happened to Huntington Bank shares, the Columbus, Ohio-based regional bank that I like so much, which saw its stock plummet 9% today? Was this supposed to be a great year for the banks? Unfortunately, when Huntington reported, the results were, I don't know, let's call them mixed. While the earnings came in better than expected thanks to strong expense controls, their net interest income and net interest margin uh, uh, income but, well, it fell, let say, a little bit short, and that resulted in a revenue miss. Now, I thought management's forecast was solid. But it's a grim day for the market. I think the stock might not even be down if it weren't for the fact that everything was plunging. And now it's back to its pre-Christmas levels. Now, if you're bullish on regional banks, though, as we are, because we expect a series of rate hikes, then you have to ask, could this be a buying opportunity, especially with a 4% yield? Let's check in with Steve Steinhauer. He's the chairman, president and CEO of Huntington Bank Shares to get a better read of the quarter. And what comes next, Mr. Steinhauer, welcome to Mad Money. Jeb, great to be
4: with you. Thank you so much.
3: Well, before we get into Huntington, which you know I've supported from the day you came in, Ohio got some great news today. And I know that you're involved in it. And I just think this intel thing is the type of thing that, to me, says great things about the heartland and great things about Ohio. Just give us a sense of how it all came together.
4: Well, this happened very, very quickly. And uh, uh, we were probably the end of the line of an RFP originally when there were 30, 40 other sites. And nothing like this exists in the Midwest. So perhaps an afterthought, but the, the RFP was responded to very, very quickly, same week. And in uh, throughout Ohio, the governor has uh, uh, Jobs Ohio, an organization that can mobilize very quickly. And then locally here in Columbus, we've had the opportunity to, to do large scale projects before. We've got uh, Facebook, Google and others in with data centers uh, uh, just in the last few years. So we, we activated resources statewide, the, the, the governor, and the legislature were fabulous, and they brought this all together very, very quickly. So this is probably a, uh, I don't know, a, a seven, eight month total project. And it is seismic. It will change the landscape here in Ohio and I think the Midwest.
3: Well, when I looked at your background, because uh, you really are a great representative of where you are from, uh, that all the different things that coalesce that need to happen, uh, uh, great schools, uh, low cost power, a workforce that understands both how to make things and how to think. Which just, it just seems like Ohio should have been where things have been happening for a long time.
4: Well, there's this great manufacturing base and a wide set of skills. There are wonderful universities and colleges throughout uh, Ohio and adjacent states that all can support and will support what I think will be a massive investment over time. Pat Kelsinger referred to it as Silicon Heartland. And if we achieve that and the scale of this project with 1,000 acres to start and options for another close to 1,000 acres, this will be like a little city of Silicon uh, production. The plant itself, the first plant uh, that they've committed to is a million square feet. The biggest chip plant in the world.
3: Well, look, it's very exciting. You know, we and we also we have American Electric Power on all the time. So we're familiar with your area and we <laughs> think it's great. And that's what brings me to uh, the first question about Huntington. Business seems uh, after all that you've been through, I mean, you came down through the great recession. This could be the best it's ever been, Correct.
4: It's really remarkable. And we're very, very enthusiastic and bullish about the outlook.
3: Now, also, if the Fed raises rates, something I might want to be in is a regional bank with good growth and not a lot of uh, loan losses. That, again, would be Huntington. That's
4: right. That's right. Plus sticky deposits, core deposits that uh, for, for us are almost half are in checking accounts. So this is a wonderful opportunity for regional banks and we think for Huntington. And added to that is this economic development engine. That's going on in the Midwest. Remember when we first met, Jim? You made a, 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 an analogy about a rust belt that was turning. You were prescient. You predicted the Midwest would rebound, and we have. It's remarkable what's occurred.
3: Well, think, I mean, look. I always felt that it a, a neglected area of the country. That is fabulous. Hardworking people. I had actually just been I remember because I I had been to a a wedding in in an area of Ohio where there was just it it was where Youngstown had been. Okay, it was the Youngstown plant. And I said, what are all these people doing? Well, they were looking for jobs. And, you know, right. now everybody's got a job. It's terrific. Now, speaking of that, it does seem to me that the regional bank that like Huntington has the deposits and has the structure and the management like you to start doing these deals that the federal government would never let, say, a J.P. Morgan do. I think TCF was one of the best banks in the country. And you got them at a very reasonable price.
4: We did. And uh, frankly, we got a tremendous group of new colleagues who've joined us more than a million and a half customers, and an economic powerhouse in some business lines. Number two in inventory finance in the country, combined with our equipment finance, number seven. There's a lot for us to go for here as we bring these niche businesses to bear. And in the fourth quarter, this was a really quick acquisition, approved by the regulators, and a very quick conversion. And now for the first time, as we come into 22, everybody's on the same systems. We can look out for our customers better. We, we, there are a series of benefits that we are positioned to take advantage of. We had a, a, a lot of conversion activity in the fourth quarter, and much of that loan closing activity went late in the quarter. Some of it spilled into the, to the new year. So as we come into the new year, it's with great loan growth, particularly commercial loan growth, right. at the end of uh, the, uh, the quarter,
3: and a lot of backlog and momentum in the business lines. Uh, very question. bullish. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, who is on all the time, is saying, listen, Omicron is going to hit the Midwest. It's going to go through the Midwest. We've got to be ready for it. Uh, are you uh, sensing that this could be the tail end of the pandemic for your area?
4: We're hoping and believe we may be on the downslide. Uh, a big university hospital uh, locally, I won't mention the name, uh, their, their number of patients on incubators is down uh, from about 30% to 10%. So well, that's a very good sign. That is a, a, um, that is
3: a great read because those people, obviously have a lot of people vaccinated. That's what happens. They live um, but look, it's just a joy to have you on. And I got to tell you, I was looking at yours before you come on. I said, oh my, 4% for regional. Oh, so hard to find. It was such a good balance sheet. This is a great place to be. And then we get the Intel news. It's terrific. Congratulations for everything you did to get Intel because I know Thank you're me. involved. Steve Steiner, President, uh, Chairman, and CEO of Huntington Bank Shares, H- H-Band, as we call it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Guys, you, you see the market today. This stock's already in condition. It's already down. Four percent yield. Great bang. We have money back.
1: Coming up. Don't fall into a fix over the VIX. Find out if there's anything to fear about the fear index. Next.
2: You seek the key.
3: With the is taking another big hit today, exactly how worried should we be? Now, I've been warning you that this market would get a lot more difficult for a whole host of stocks since late November. But what do we do now that they keep rolling over? Whenever we arrive at a highly emotional situation like this sell-off, you always want to take your feelings out of the equation. That's why I like to fall back on a more quantitative, empirical approach. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Mark Sebastian. Now, he is a brilliant technician who's the founder of OptionPit.com, and he's our resident volatility expert. And the name of the game right now, of course, is Volatility. In the middle of last week, the CBOE volatility index, also known as the VIX for short or the fear gauge, if you want to be more evocative, stood at 17, 17. Today, it's a 29. Like I told you last night, yesterday's late afternoon breakdown was absolutely terrifying. Market lured you in a strong opening and then steamrolled you if you were foolish enough to take the bait. Then we got another ugly session today. So how do we interpret all of this pain? According to Mark Sebastian, there are two types of situations where the VIX explodes higher. You've got the volatility spikes and the volatility swells. Now, if you're bull, you'd much rather go through a spike. That's the short-term pop in volatility, where the stock market sells off swiftly over the course of a few days. And we've had a few of those spikes in the last year. The worst of them took place in mid-September through early October as we were coming to grips with the Delta variant. How about volatility swells, though? Okay. In a volatility swell, the VIX rises for an extended period of time, maybe two to six weeks, and the stock market experiences a genuine correction. In Sebastian's eyes, we haven't seen a serious volatility swell since 2020, or at least we had because we're certainly seeing one now. I want you to take a look at the pair of daily charts, the S&P 500, on top, with the volatility index on the bottom, going back over the last 12 months. You can spot more than a half dozen volatility spikes here, where the VIX briefly shot higher, then the market sold off, and then the S&P went back into rally mode not long after. According to Sebastian, this current move is different. The VIX didn't just explode higher out of the blue. It's not a spike. It's a swell. And swells are ugly, as you can see from the next chart, when we zoom in on the S&P and the VIX just back through November. As Sebastian points out, ever since the S&P 500 topped out on Jan 3rd, the VIX has been slowly but steadily marching higher. It hasn't made any giant single day moves, but it rallied relentlessly for the last three weeks. No, there was no spike there. According to Sebastian, this is actually bad news for the stock market. What does it mean when the VIX steadily moves higher? Okay, the VIX measures the implied volatility of S&P 500 options. So when it rises like this, it means that traders have been buying protection for themselves every time the VIX tries to back off. Even on days when the market manages to rally, they don't move to unwind these hedges. They buy more insurance. Remember, rule number one, volatility index is that it's supposed to go down when the market goes up. And it goes up when the market goes down. Very strong negative correlation here. However, when that correlation breaks down, it tells you there's something wrong with the action. Now, just look at what happened with the S&P 500 and the VIX yesterday. Very short term, just the hours. Even when the market was booming in the morning, remember we had that really horrible up opening? The volatility index didn't really drop very much. While the S&P was up a percent and a half, the VIX only dropped a touch over two points, which is barely worth noting. As the S&P stayed up nearly 1.5% for several hours, Sebastian says you would normally expect traders to sell their long-put options, right? Which would push the VIX significantly lower, right? Market goes up, VIX should go down. In fact, around 11, the VIX started to rally, even as the S&P stayed in place. Bad sign. Sure enough, when the market started to plunge, the VIX was off to the races. In Sebastian's view, that's a clear sign that the climb was right and the earlier rally was misleading. And that's not all. I want you to take a look at this chart of the VIX futures. Remember, this index is based off option prices and options expire every month. So you can bet on an April volatility or May volatility or June volatility with the futures. Unfortunately, the VIX futures have started to move into what's known as a state of backwardation. Uh, in other words, the current volatility index is trading at a premium to the February VIX futures, and the February futures are, tra- are starting to move above the March futures. According to Sebastian, when the VIX futures going into backwardation, it's a sign of the market becoming irrational. It's often a turning point for the stock market. It can mean we're about to reach a significant bottom and that the average can turn around, something that the oversold condition would indicate. But it can also mark the beginning of a hideous breakdown. Sebastian points out that the VIX futures went into backwardation in March of 2020 and stayed that way for weeks. Same thing happened in October of 2018. Federal Reserve crushed the stock market with a series of aggressive rate hikes, and j talked about the need to overshoot in order to stamp out inflation. In short, pretty much every time the market sells off dramatically, Sebastian says the VIX futures tend to go into backwardation about a third of the way through the devastation. Then the selling continues for a few more weeks. Unfortunately, that's where he thinks we are right now. Because we're not dealing with a VIX spike. We're dealing with a VIX swell. And those always last longer than you'd like. The bottom line, the as interpreted by Mark Sebastian suggests that the S&P 500 can remain in the house of pain through early February. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if he's right. But as the market gets hit, you need to hold your nose and use this weakness to buy the stocks of quality companies that make real products or provide real services and generate real profits, like we started to do today for the Travel Trust, as you saw, if you're a member of the club and watched our morning meeting show. Everything else? Ice it. Uh, let's go to Johans uh, in Texas. Johans.
1: Yes, good afternoon, Jim. Thank you so much for taking my call. Of course. Long, longtime listener and subscriber. Back in September, I bought into the buy now, pay later trend and took a position in the firm holdings, and I've watched it just get beaten down.
3: <laughs> what is your advice? Okay, you're you're banking with Max Levchin, and I think Max is a brilliant man. And I think you just got to hold it. Max will figure out a way to make money. That's what he's done all his career, and you can work with him to do that. And I think I'm not saying shut your eyes to anything. I'm saying that Max Levchin's a moneymaker, and he's going to help you out of what looks like a wilderness right now. Let's go to Timothy in Texas, please, Timothy. Hey, how you doing, Jim? I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, well, I got COVID, but um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, with that. man. Uh, I'm okay. I've been got the boosters, so I'm All good. Right. Um, my stock is a. Uh, uh, I bought this stock in November as a speculative. Um, it had lidar tech. I was kind of interested into. Okay. Um, the stock is uh, Lumina. Um, I got in at about nineteen forty-five, and it's just you know been down down to thirteen dollars. Right, thirteen dollar range. You know they had uh, three. $300 million, million dollar buyback. Uh, they've been granted their patents and they got deals with uh, Volvo and Mercedes. I was just wondering if I should, can't hold on to this? You know, or, I, look, uh, I, I, I cannot be uh, encouraging if only just because I have been, ever since November, uh, a believer that if a company is in pre-revenue or not making any money or losing a lot of money and doesn't have anything uh, that is say a, a product that people want, Uh, that everybody wants, consumer product, it's not going to work. And not going to work is really just code for it's going to go lower. So I wish I could be encouraging, but I have left I've left the, that train in the station. All right. The charts is injured by Mark Sebastian, suggested that selling the s and 500 could continue through early February. Against that is the oscillator I used, which says we should start buying, and the negativity, which tells me that you'd be wrong not to pick away at good things. If the charts are right, though, I suggest using that weakness to buy high-quality companies that's why I can't recommend a LiDAR play. I can't recommend a battery play. I have to recommend real companies here with real profits and real goods. Much more mad money. head whenever you call in and stump me on a stock, I put in the work and report back with my thoughts. Tonight, we're tackling two of those stocks. And then Netflix investors are not chill today after earnings. Not like Jimmy chill. And I'm sharing what else beyond the headline numbers is impacting the stocks. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Frame. Point the selling has gotten so bad and so indiscriminate that I think you now need to be ready to hold your nose and buy something on the way down, as we did in a small way for the charitable trust this week. We talked about this morning, where we uh, put some of the money to work that we had sold earlier in the week. But I know it's very difficult to get enthusiastic about new ideas at a time when it feels like the market's doomed to go lower every day, right? Does someone feel like? It? So that's why tonight I want to catch up on some homework. Remember, this is the most interactive show on television, albeit maybe only by the standards of 2005 when we first went on the air. Whenever you ask me about a stock and I'm not familiar with that, I don't just say I like that very much. I say, no, oh, I'm going to take some time, research it, and come back, consider a response. I don't like to cut things. Tonight, I've got two of them that are right at the center of the squall of selling that's engulfed the entire market. A pair of post-SPAC names that completed their mergers last year. This is the blast zone. I think most of the SPAC stocks are just untouchable. But every now and then, you'll find a quality company that might be worth picking It the weakness. You always got to do the homework. So let's get to it. On December 21st, right before we broke for the holidays, we got a call from Mark in South Carolina who wanted to know about a company called Nautilus Biotechnology, uh, which came public by a merger with a SPAC last summer, like so many others. Now, the Nautilus deal was announced in February of last year, right at the height of SPAC mania. So the stock actually exploded higher on the news, doubling from 11 to 22 in a single session. Everyone was excited. But like so many other SPAC names, it's been all downhill ever since, especially the last few weeks. And the point is, the stock's trading under four. This one's barely large enough to talk about on television. It's crushed so many people. So what the heck does uh, Nautilus Biotechnology do? And is its stock worth a couple of bucks here? It's kind of like a Powerball ticket, isn't it? These guys are working on a technology platform that will, in their words, unlock the complexity of the human proteome. If you're asking yourself what the heck is the human proteome, you're not alone. We asked ourselves what the heck is the human proteome, and then we had to look it up and do study. It turns out these are a set of proteins that control cellular functionality. Unlike your genes, though, the proteome is constantly changing depending on your diet and a host of other factors. That makes it notoriously difficult to study. Here's where Nautilus comes in. They're trying to create a platform, think instruments, reagents, software, that can take in proteome samples and return unique biological data. The ultimate goal is to create better individualized treatments for all sorts of conditions, kind of like a, you know immunotherapy. The analyst who covers this industry for Jeffries likes it to the DNA sequencing space roughly 20 years ago. Now, that only gave birth to all sorts of huge biotech winners. That intrigues us. The thing is, this story is very much in the earliest possible stages. Again, Nautilus isn't trying to study the human proteome. They're trying to come up with tools that are capable of studying. They want to be an arms dealer to this industry. Intriguing. Of course, I have no idea if we have the technology to study the human proteome or what we could get out of it. But I do know that Nautilus has some encouraging partnerships. In 2020, they signed a collaboration agreement with Roche's Genentech to map and analyze the landscape of a particular protein that they're interested in. Very good partner. More recently, Nautilus has linked a deal with Amgen, too, to use their platform for a number of different projects. They've got research agreements with the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center to help study targeted cancer treatments. All of these are great, great companies to be involved with. Get this. Over the summer, we also found out that Amazon, of all companies, had taken a $15 million stake in the company. Jeff Bezos even invested in it personally. That news caused the stock to spike up 50%, although the enthusiasm was short-lived. Beyond partners and investors, Nautilus also has some real sponsorship on Wall Street, which makes it pretty unusual for a SPAC name. Since July, four analysts, including those at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, have initiated coverage of Nautilus with either buy or hold ratings. Of course, none of these calls had, <laughs> had done any, any good. If you listen to them, you've been crushed, honestly. The best thing about Nautilus is that they had 347 million dollars of cash, 347 at the end of September, which is huge considering that this is roughly 500 million dollar company. And look at it another way. It's a four dollar stock with two dollars and 80 cents of cash per share. No debt. In other words, you're practically getting the company for free here. I like that. But it's not necessarily a reason to buy a stock because they have to burn that cash. And they might even have to do with the loot of equity offering to raise more capital in the next couple of years. In the end, I don't really have an edge on Nautilus. I told you everything I know. But I don't have any strong feelings the other way. But even if you want to speculate on a SPAC name that's been de-risked, I recommend waiting because Nautilus is wrong for the current moment. If you think the sound of pro- proteo monks, well, let's put it in, if you like it, uh, you know who dabbles in it? It's Thermo Fisher, TMO. And, and it's more fitting for this market. But, look, I play Powerball. This could be Powerball. Next up, on January 3rd, Stu in Florida called about Six Terrace Technologies. Wow, this one's interesting. Now, this came public by merging with Starboard Values back late last July. Starboard's a good company. Here's a company that was created five years ago when the old CenturyLink, now called Lumen, carved out its data center and co-location business, which was always good. I got to tell you, uh, Six Terrace is interesting. Unlike so many SPAC names, this is a real business, significant revenue, actual earnings, at least before you backed out interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's a major reason why the stock has held up much better than its post-SPAC peers. currently it trades at 10 bucks and change, a level where it's repeatedly stabilized in the past. What does 6 do? I, I say they're a data center play, but more specifically, this is what's known as a co-location provider, also known as a carrier-neutral data center, because they don't force their customers to use a specific telecom carrier for broadband. It's similar to something like Equinix. I like the data center business. You know that. But ultimately, Sixterra used to be a private equity portfolio company, so the balance sheet is still loaded with a mountain of debt. And that's why it's only profitable on an EBITDA basis, not an earnings per share basis. While I like the financials here, there are some other negatives, too. Sixterra leases the majority of its real estate. They don't own it. They actually lease some of this space from digital Realty, There's a company I like. That seems like a better bet in this environment. It's got a 3% dividend yield. More importantly, there are some large shareholders in Sixterra who are currently locked up. and I expect the stock to get hit when those lockups end. The two former private equity backers collectively own 63% of the business. Stack sponsor, Starboard Value, owns 10%. They have a quirky lockup agreement. They can't sell until late July or if the stock goes above 12 and stays there for at least 20 days without, within a 30-day period. With the stock just under 11, I think that seriously limits your upside because if Sixterra ever has a sustained rally, you have to expect these firms to want to ring the register or at least part of their position. In the end, I like the data center business, but if you want a data center play backed by, backed by an activist, I'd rather go with Switch, which is currently getting pressured by Elliott Management to convert itself into a real estate investment trust. These are both interesting. I'm trying to do the work for them. But in the end, you know what? There's nothing like owning a J&J. Bad money's back in February. Coming
1: up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round.
3: It is time for the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, guys. Time for the lightning round. comes It's over. Jen in New York. Jen.
0: Jim, you're smart, dedicated, and we love the show. Will oh, ATT thank go you, up? Thank you're you, You're very welcome. Will T go up prior to and after the spin off?
3: You, you. I have to tell you, I have. Let me tell you how I feel about ATT. I don't hate it anymore. Let's go to Ted in Texas, Ted. Big Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Hey, buddy. I was wondering uh, what your thoughts were on growth generation. It was, a, on their, it was a stock. On their... I mean, very rarely do I ever say it, but it's a stock whose time has come and went. It was a, you know, they bought a lot of companies. They did a roll up and then they did one roll up too many. And then I had to say goodbye. And that's where it remains in the goodbye. Mode. Let's go to not be uh, UI. Time. Let's go to Joe in Connecticut. Joe. yeah, Jimmy chill Booyah. First time, long time millennial investor and investment club member. Oh, great. Great. Thank you. So since I last heard you comment on the stock saying it was a baby thrown out with the bathwater, the company reported preliminary 2021 numbers, including a record Q4. And despite surging Omicron, the company is entering 2022 with a lot of momentum. As management stated, December was the best month in company history. They have real earnings, real growth, a reasonable stock valuation, new tech, and management consistently beats their own conservative guidance. But it's been cut in half from its highs and the declines continue. Should I be pounding the table on in-mode, INMD? Yeah, Joe's absolutely right. This situation is a very good situation, but the mercurial nature of this market is not letting this in-mode bottom. It's trading as if it's losing big money and not doing it. I like in-mode. I can't tell you when it stops, but I do like in-mode. Let's go to Jerry in California. Jerry.
4: Yeah, nice to talk to you, Jim. Hope all all is well there. So, Got this uh, GDRX, and I thought it was a great idea when you brought it to all our attention to, you know, helping people in need and so forth and so on. But, of course, this week, like everything else, it yeah, wait, it's exactly
3: with- like the others. It doesn't make any money, and that's what people think of. I was with someone over the holidays, a, uh, a buddy of my daughter's who works there, a real smart kid, went to Summit. And, you know, I he asked what do you think? Good, I said, I use it. It's a great product. But you know what? I'm looking at it. It sells it 67 times, earnings, losing money. I mean. You, you, these are all no-go. I mean, they're in a no-fly zone. You just got to look at it like that. Let's go to Randy in Ohio. Randy. Uh, yeah. Uh, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How about you? <laughs> hey, just over here. Just got done watching the sun go down and waiting for Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Go ahead. Okay, my question is,
2: uh, uh, I want to know how much is dividend in and what the companies are affiliated with H&R look,
3: it, They're up against Intuit. I mean, that's like, it, that is... Literally bring a knife to a gunfight. I, I can't go there. I need to go to Antonio, Michigan. Antonio. Hey, Jim. um, This stock is down on the year so far. Uh, They recently acquired a company that got them into data center, infrastructure management, which is always growing. Uh, Given the down year so far, do you like Carrier Global? Very much so. Dave Gitlin is a terrific CEO. There's a company I would buy some at 40, some at 35, and some at 30 may get there. And when it does, you got to be big because that's a good company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by T.D. Ameritrade. Coming up, does today's drop mark a permanent divorce between Netflix and its partner, Chill. Kramer breaks down how this streamer's dreams turned into a nightmare. Next.
0: Kramer, you are super... You
3: are awesome. I'm a first-time investor. Thank you for inspiring me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you're on TV. I want
0: you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer.
3: Too much to watch. Too much to do. Not enough time. That's what really crushed the stock of Netflix, down nearly 22% today after last night's fiasco of a forecast by the entertainment kingpin. For years, the CEO of Reed Hastings has told us that his real competition is simply the other potential uses of the time people have, between, say, when they get home from work and when they go to sleep at night or weekends. But the narrative changed and changed hard last night. Netflix actually delivered pretty much in-line numbers, but its forecast was for far less than a half of the subscriber growth that most research firms were expecting. The reason, among many, including an odd reference to weakness in Latin America, the main culprit was that there's finally too much competition. See, the spell has been broken. Broken by Roku, broken by Hulu, broken by Peacock, which is owned by our parent network, broken by Paramount Plus and Showtime and HBO Max and Disney Plus. The limiting factor for Netflix is no longer time. It's everybody else in the streaming business. The market immediately jumped to that conclusion uh, that home entertainment is now capped. And if anything, it's been wildly overinflated by the stay at home nature of the pandemic. i beg to differ. different. As you know, unlike almost every other investment manager over there, I play up with an open hand. Uh, I show you what I'm doing with my travel trust, try to teach you how to be a better personal ma- portfolio manager. That's why I started the club, right? And this morning in our morning meeting internet show at 10, 20 a.m. for investing CNBC Investing Club members only, I said that the decline in Disney off the Netflix news seemed wrongheaded. Disney Plus is the overlap here. And with the stock down 10 to 137, you know, it was it $200 less than a year ago, you're now getting that whole business that people have turned on practically for free. Now, I've been too early on Disney. We rang the register on this one for the Travel Trust last year. And then when it came all the way back in, I said, I've got to start buying it. Unfortunately, because I mentioned this morning on television, I wasn't able to buy it lower than the other stock that I had bought. I can only tell people that's what I want to buy. And, it, by the way, if it is down here next week, we're going to buy a bunch. But it's time to stop conflating speculative stories with investment-grade stories. Many stocks that have been annihilated here belong to companies that don't have much in the way of earnings, companies that mostly trade on hype or hope. you got all the SPAC plays, hundreds of them, of which I'm hard-pressed to find three or four that might be worth owning. There are all the recent IPOs from the last 18 months, nearly all of which are uninvestable because their valuations were inflated by the private equity venture capital investment banking complex. Uh, Crypto, uh, which contains the most egregious excesses, including Dogecoin. I think Dogecoin is a comedy, but as SEC chairman Gary Gensler told us, it needs a lot more disclosure. A comedy with disclosure. The problem with crypto is that there's no floor, and we know almost nothing too cryptic. With stocks, at least we know how many shares exist. All these speculative assets keep getting put through the meat grinder. That's what's really going on. Now, of course, they got some good ones today. They're out of style. But you just can't extrapolate the weakness of one company, which is done very well, Netflix, with a whole host of other companies with great brand names that make fantastic products and generate good earnings, like Disney. Yes, full circle to Disney. I want to own the stocks of long-standing great American companies that are brought down in a guilt by association fiasco. And that's exactly what happened to this talk of Disney today. I'm not saying Netflix isn't worth owning. At some point, it sure will be. I am saying that there are plenty of high quality companies that were polax today because of Netflix. And those were the best ones to buy, not the SPACs, not the recent class of IPOs, and most certainly not crypto, especially Dogecoin. I'd like to say there's always a mark summer. I promise to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you Monday. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.